Hello, and welcome to this edition of Life's Tough. You can be tougher. Our first podcast was earlier this year. And since we started, we've had a number of inspiring and engaging guests and lots of free-flowing conversation. I'm Dustin Plano, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie or an HBO miniseries. When you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show today with our featured guest, Charles Rosen. Charles is the founder of Ironbound Hard Cider, a social enterprise company. I'm looking forward to talking with Charles. It's sure to be a conversation you don't want to miss. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-P-O-I-C-A-B-O. Or check out their website, poiibogaine.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Charles Rosen is the founder of New Jersey-based Ironbound Hard Cider, a social enterprise company designed to try and change a system that he believes has been designed to fail the very people it is supposed to help. Over the last six years, Rosen has been developing a dramatically different concept for bringing the formerly incarcerated, as well as other chronically underemployed members of our community, including immigrants and vets, back into the workforce. One that goes beyond what any federal, state, or nonprofit program has done. The goal is to give ex-offenders a real chance to rise above a system that Rosen believes is purposely designed to put them right back in prison. He accomplishes this by a radical workforce development program, combined with a collective of local entrepreneurs. Let's welcome him on now. Welcome to the show, Charles. Hi, really good to be here, Dustin. And so, Charles, what prompted you to support ex-offenders? Uh, my father being one of them, uh, so an ex-offender. It, it, it comes with quite, um, quite an emotional bond or emotional strain at times. I mean, you're taking on their story. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it took me a long time to... Uh, zero in on on that portion of our population um, and also other members of of our community that I think of as the chronically underemployed, whether it's uh, uh, veterans, uh, immigrants, you know, people of need. And um, I I have a background in in the American political system and, and really came to understand that once you understand for whom the system works, you realize it's working really well, and there's very little incentive for it to change. And uh, the vast majority of us are stuck in what I think of, you know, as this left versus right or us versus them uh, discourse. And um, we're all running around having that conversation. It has very little to do with the system that's that's been designed, you know, our political, our economic, even our cultural systems, um, for, really for the people um, – that uh, that have control or grasps on, on those on those systems. So um, I live uh, just outside of Newark, New Jersey. Um, when I started this company, 
less than 8% of the jobs in Newark were held by Newark residents. We had a tremendous amount of people coming into the city of Newark, uh, working for really big companies, Prudential and PSE&G, really big uh, Audible, these great companies. Um, but very few of those jobs were going to actually Newark residents. And uh, so I, I, as I started to look at what it would be to build a company in a city like Newark, um, I had to think about how that business w- was going to serve and partner with the most underserved members of, of, of the city. And uh, it became pretty clear yeah. uh, very quickly that that was primarily the, the ex-offender population or the, the returning citizen population. Um, and, and so I felt like, well, if I could build a business um, that that had repair of this community at its heart, um, but but also taking it out of the political discourse, you know, again, out of this left versus right discourse, but yeah. just be a for-profit business that was treating these people with dignity and respect and helping, you know, rekindle the economy of a city like Newark, then, then I, I was hopeful that it would be a model that others would follow. And you've done something miraculous. I mean, you, what, what you've done with the organization um, is quite remarkable. How did you not give up? I mean, I'm sure you met so many <laughs> obstacles. I mean, I'm sure everyone told you, you're crazy, man. You'd find something easier to do. Yeah. How did you do it? Yeah. Well, uh, I think every day, um, you know, it's it's um, we're taking on something really big, and so um, I haven't given up yet. Let's for sure put it that <laughs> so way. Put it's, it down it's, yet. It's, it's it's hard, but I, I would say, you know, I think what's really interesting. Um, the work is really hard doing any kind of transformative work, you know, whether we're talking about how we engage in the land, you know, our company is very involved in regenerative agriculture and environmental repair, or it's about human transformation, you know, helping individuals shift from a state of chronic poverty. Um, that's really slow and hard work, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and very few organizations, um, you know, whether they're governmental or non-governmental, not-for-profits or whatever, very few organizations are built to put in that kind of time, right? They use a metric that says, okay, well, if we can push as many people through our system as possible, we're going to get more government funding, right? Um, So it's hard and slow, and we have a tremendous amount of failures pretty much every day. Um, A lot of the men and women that work for me are back in prison or they're unemployed for other reasons and, and it's hard. Um, but I think why I haven't given up personally and why I think we all work so hard at this is that everything we see in our current, I don't know, cultural discourse, um, we feel like we're responding to it, right? With optimism and, and passion and repair as opposed to like further division, right? I was even, we were just all talking about this, um, at the farm yesterday, um, I'm, I'm looking at these shootings that just happened this weekend. Terrible. Um, and, right. And, but I realized like, well, those shootings aren't about the typical, like, I don't know, gun reform and um, mental illness discourse. It's actually about this idea that we're, we're all pitted against each other all the time sure in our are. society, right? That's true. This, this competition of this us versus themness that exists in our society, um, we've sort of lost any um, idea of we, right, the collective, right? And, and, and for a long time in this country, the American dream had this balance between individual rights and the rights of the group, the collective, the community. But there's no community-ness in, in any of our conversations anymore. It's, it's mostly about how do I succeed, you know, and... and at any cost, too, by the way. At any cost. And i got to get that other guy out of my way. That's right. And whether that other person is a person of color or they're an immigrant or whatever they are, um, if they are the threat, 
I need to do what I can to remove that threat. But at work, what we're finding is not only are these guys not a threat, but my success is so desperately linked to their success. As each one of us in the system gets stronger, the whole system gets stronger, right? So, you know, I, I always joke at work, I've got, you know, guys showing up to work, uh, farmers with their Make America Great Again hat on, you know, working side by side by a guy who's still in a gang in Newark, you know, and then yeah. some immigrant. And, and we we always look like the most busted Benetton ad you've ever seen. But, but it's what community feels like. It's what family feels like. And we're working... Uh, with a shared mission that, um, I don't know, it, it, I'm, every day I show up to work, I am more inspired by the people around me than I think they are. Um, you know, uh, all I've done is sort of kind of created a platform where that work can happen. So I think I keep going because if I don't, the alternative really sucks, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so that's, that's the motivation. So I when think. you're hiring people from all backgrounds, terminating can also come with its own challenges. You know, you have you know, certain people for no fault of their own, maybe childhood trauma, and they made some decisions along the way, and others that maybe they went through a rough patch in their life. You know, how do you take out what you know about people? Because going in, you know everything. How do you handle that? I mean, making as a as a business owner, um, making those decisions. I mean, they come with potential impacts. Um, yeah, I mean, you know. I think everybody gets really excited by the notion of being a second chance employer or saying, Hey, we should just give people an opportunity and, um, they need a job. Um, it, it became pretty clear to me early on that, that, that job paying living wages, whatever was only the very beginning. Um, it was just the start. Um, so many of these men and women are missing some, some skills that we take for granted, things like conflict resolution or yeah. identity value, emotional intelligence, um, these things that allow us to navigate these really complex days. And um, so we built a curriculum um, uh, in partnership with Columbia University on, on trying to create those soft skills for, for our team. And um, so, you know, we've integrated it into our daily um, you know, business activities, uh, even on our farm, um, most of our farm managers have, you know, backgrounds in horticultural therapy and, you know, working the land itself is a healing kind of activity and you're healing the land and yourself at the same time. It's, it's pretty powerful. And, um, uh, so, you know, I think being, thinking about that kind of repair work all the time, um, you start to see, um, the fact that most of these people are coming to us in, in survival mode, right? Yeah. Whatever they've done in their life, uh, whether it's what put them into prison or how they're existing after they get out, it's because they're in survival mode. It takes so much energy just to get to work, uh, keep that job, not lose that job and get enough food on the table. That's it. That's the energy they have, right, for the day. And so a lot of these people have lost the... I don't know, problem-solving capacity that, that comes along with knowing that the base is okay. So the first thing we really try to work on is creating this space where people have, that they feel welcomed, they don't feel threatened, um, they know it's a place for repair, they know they have a personal obligation to participate in that, right? Um, I'm creating the space for it, but they have a job to be part of their own and, and their fellow coworkers' repair. Um, and I think when you start to see 
some transformation where their identities, let's say, no longer about the kind of street cred they have, right, within mm -hmm. their gangs, but they start to um, take on this role as mentor or advisor to other people. Um, you see that shift happening, and with that shift comes a great, um, I don't know, source of energy for them. Um, but it doesn't work all the time. It, I don't even know if I could say that it works most of the time, right, because um, – as they start to see that that work is hard and it's every day, a lot of people slip out of it, right? And then the gang is luring you back in. Yeah, they want you um, back. The pressures on the street. I mean, you know, when you get out of prison, and it, it, it's different state by state, but here in New Jersey, it's illegal to live in public housing. You can't live in Section 8 housing. Hmm. It's illegal to work around open alcohol. So in Newark, as an example, they can't be ticket takers at the Prudential Center where the New Jersey Devils play because there's open alcohol. It's set up against them. They're, they're, they're and, all of their, and all of the fees and child support payments and alimony payments, those all come doing the day they're out. So they can't get a job. They can't live anywhere affordably and they owe but, all this money. Yeah, but don't make, don't do something illegal, but please go take care of yourself. Right, right, right. But you know, if you don't do this, guess where you end up. So, so those pressures are insanely, um, all consuming. So, you know, what I think we're trying to do is, is, is first kind of give them a little breathing room just to get out of that. And, um, why we start, you know, folks at a pretty, pretty sizable pay to begin with, just to sort of get over that initial burden. And then, um, then it's, I don't know, years of working together to try to um, create a resiliency. And, you know, I, I think it, 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 like for me, it comes down to this idea that in our form of agriculture, we, we do what's known as regenerative agriculture, which is about building um, biodiversity in the soil, right? And and what that is, is like, it's it's in the soil. We think more about, you know, growing dirt than we do about the, the, the plants and our trees. Um, but it's this idea that if we create this system of diverse organisms that support one another, as each organism in the system gets stronger, the whole system gets stronger, right? And so we're, we're trying to mimic that on the human repair side. And, and, and so it's, it's this idea of, of, of creating a space when we know people are going to take two steps back, always. Somebody's not going to be able to show up to work because something happened or um, – something happens with a family member and, and whatever it is, there's going to be some steps back. Somebody gets rearrested. Um, I spent a lot of my time, you know, talking to prosecutors. I happen to have a background as an attorney. It's helpful. I talk to the parole officers all the time. Um, if I've got, you know, three guys driving from Newark out to our farm in, in Western New Jersey, um, three black guys in a car in Western New Jersey, they get stopped. It's, we call it the three, third man rule, right? That's just, driving while black, right? That's a, that's, that's a crime in a lot of places. So, you know, all my guys carry uh, a form of identification that talks about our company, has my cell phone number on it, has the parole officer's it's, information. It's, guilt, it's guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. So like, you know, I know my guys are going to be late to work a lot of the time because you know what, <laughs> they're on route 78 and, and they're going to get stopped. So that, you know, the, I have, as an employer, it's hard to say like, hey, you got to be at work or, hey, you've missed three days in a row. That's grounds for termination. I, you know, as, a, as an employer, as a business, it's important that people can show up. But we also have to have some compassion and understanding that maybe somebody's not showing up for a reason that was way outside of their control. And where did you find that empathy? I mean, your, your background, what got you to that spot to, to care so much? I mean, again, I, I could say that it's why don't you cheat like? many others do legal labor, maybe some Chinese yeah. products. Like 
Why don't you do something where it's not so difficult, which means you have empathy that leads you into the decision-making process. Where did that come from? Um, well, I had really spectacular parents. Um, I think, you know, part of it is that I, I, I grew up in Canada and I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm a dual citizen. And, uh, I didn't realize how Canadian I was until I was involved in American politics. And, and I realized that I grew up in a society that was kind of more rooted in the collective good, right? Uh, this notion of a social safety net and things. And, um, you know, traveling a lot of this country, uh, in, in our political system, you come to realize again that the American dream is very much rooted in the individual, right? So um, I, I always found some balance um, between that. Uh, so, you know, part of the empathy, I think, comes from understanding that my success doesn't come at the expense of yours. My success is actually connected to yours, right? So that's that's part one. You're in the collective. Part, that's correct. Right. Yeah. And, 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 but part two um, is... The alternative isn't working. Um, we are we are at a global scale creating an economy where the rich are getting so rich and the poor are getting so poor. It's not a sustainable path. So even if this wasn't born of empathy or compassion or understanding or whatever you know drivers that I have on me personally, even just as a business, I know that that is not how you create a viable business any longer. You know, it, 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 for a long time in this country, a corporation had a responsibility to the community in which it resided, right? Uh, owners of companies went to church with their coworkers. Their children went to school together. There was a, a responsibility to, to the workforce, to the land, to the community. Well, you know, about starting 60 years ago when we started outsourcing labor, to overseas, um, corporations started to take on this role that their only responsibility is to shareholders, right? The fiduciary responsibility of most corporations is to quarterly returns to their shareholders. Well, once the company no longer has any sort of um, responsibility to its community, to its workforce, to its customers, to anybody, and it's just about making money, that is not creating long-term resiliency or viability for that company. And let's, and, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of digging in with, with you, seeing where things are going. What's your thoughts on Amazon? Well, you know, that's a, I mean, to be honest, that's a perfect example. Um, you know, you cannot beat Amazon if the only thing that we value or prioritize is efficiency and, and cost, right? I can, I don't, I can have a robot deliver socks to my couch, you know? Um, so if all I'm worrying about is convenience and low cost and efficiency, no small community-based company can beat Amazon. Can't do it. So I, I as a consumer, have to value other things. I have to value and appreciate a company that, you know, supports my local community support. You know, when we look at this on the, on the agricultural side, how we make our, our hard, hard, hard cider with, um, you know, we only use fresh pressed local apples, uh, from New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, in a, you know, in addition to our orchards, we've built a network of growers where we are paying the minimum we pay them is five times what they're getting for their juice apples when they grow for companies like Mott's Apple Juice, right? Um, so these growers are living all below the poverty line. Uh, so I've created this network of, of growers. We've given away thousands and thousands of cider apple trees for free. Wow. So now they have a viable revenue stream. I've diversified my environmental risk uh, because we have you know, trees all over the tri-state area. 
And it's way more cost effective than me trying to grow all the apples myself. So to me, you know, it's working uh, to create, uh, you know, uh, more resiliency for those local farmers, those small scale family farms. And, and, and it makes sense for my business because it's way cheaper to buy juice from them than it is for me to grow all the apples myself. Uh, myself and 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 our largest competitors in hard cider are all made from foreign concentrate, right? So they're paying pennies a gallon for concentrate that's coming from overseas, and we're paying, you know, American farmers for fresh pressed apples. So that we're, not only are we supporting that local, you know, agricultural economy. But our consumers care about that, right? So the the thing about it sounds you know, delicious. Uh, by the way, I have not had one yet, so it sounds it's really delicious. good. We, it's no added sugar. It's only local ingredients. No concentrate. No preservatives. We have no sulfites, and and so. But the liquid's really good. But what I know in terms of my background in in building brands, I also owned an ad agency. I've had a very you know <laughs> wild and diverse background. But anyway, you know a lot of what we consume, especially when you're looking at alcohol, mostly has to do with the identity that, you know, our own identity as a consumer, right? So if I'm at a bar, I'm going to order a certain beer or whatever so that, the, you know, the other people in the bar that think that I'm cool enough, right, based on what I'm drinking. Yep. Very little to do with the liquid, right? So especially when you look at the, you know, the young millennial consumer, that consumer is paying a premium to align themselves with businesses that do business the right way. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if, if, if Starbucks, you know, arrest two black guys for using the bathroom in Philadelphia, you know, some months ago, those millennials shut that down fast. Right. And then Howard Schultz, the, you know, founder of Starbucks had to do a big song and dance and say that they were changing their entire, you know, employment model. Um, so the power of the consumer to say, look, we value businesses that do business the right way. We value the local economy. We value people that pay living wages to their to their workforce. Those companies are going to thrive because they can charge a premium for their product. Amazon can't say that. They can't say that. So, um, and 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 the consumer has no identity connection to Amazon. So yeah, so maybe they're getting their products cheaper and faster from Amazon, and that's convenient. But they have no connection to Amazon as a brand. And how sustainable is this in terms of job loss over the next two, three, five, ten years if it keeps it's on not. its trajectory? It's not. That's my point. We we, we you know when I think about a business that can support a local, like in our case, we're creating a local food system that isn't about vertical un integration under me, but it's a company that's growing horizontally, right? So whether we're talking about growers or people that are taking the, 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 that food that those farmers are growing and turning them into other products, so those are the value-add producers, or the restaurants and the bars that serve our products, our food and our, and our cider, um, and the end consumer. So here's this closed economic loop where everybody from the farmer through to the end consumer is getting value, right? Everybody along that, that supply chain. So in our country right now, the average farmer makes 14 cents on every food dollar, 14 cents. So if you're buying a dollar of broccoli, the grower only gets 14 of cents of that, of that dollar. Farmers can't survive. That's not a big we problem. We lose something like 300 farmer. family farms a week in this country because they can't survive. So we have to create 
a model where those farmers actually uh, farming can be a viable and and rewarding um, opportunity. So if we're wiping out all our farms and we're wiping out all of our jobs with drivers and uh, you know in distribution and whatever, um, it's it is not sustainable. Um, and, you know, so I worry about that kind of threat when we talk about, you know, obviously automation. And again, if all we value is low cost, convenient, you know, uh, accessible food or clothes or whatever it is, we're driving that market that way. So I know there are companies out there. I've, I heard this term and I've stolen it because I really love it. There, there's companies out there that are now part of what they're calling, what we're calling the solutions economy, right? Which I love, but we're no longer looking to government or to these not-for-profits to solve these big, you know, chasms in our societies. So for me, that's primarily focused around reentry and criminal justice reform and, and, and environmental repair or, or regenerative agriculture. But other companies are taking on environmental issues, income inequality, you know, lots of other things. Um, and as consumers, we have an obligation to support those kind of companies. Correct. Yeah, we take on. So my background's foster care. Uh, we talk about in the show quite a bit that right now in the United States, there are over 440,000 children in a United States foster care home. And there are millions of people like me, the foster care alumni, where what happens in the early days does impact how you make decisions in the later days. And so mm. that's one of those causes that when we look at childhood trauma, that 25% of all of those kids, the moment they become adults, will be incarcerated. So when people that's say, right. well, well uh, I don't know, the crime's going up in my neighborhood, and I go, well, okay, well, what are you doing to support orphans? What are you doing to support the kids that don't have a mom or dad like you? Because now they've aged up and they're making bad decisions. And you're saying, why can't they do it different? My response is, had you been born in the same background, you probably would have OD'd by now. That's exactly right. You're so spot on. I know, you know, I I live in a community here in New Jersey uh, that's got a tremendous amount of socioeconomic diversity. Um, My children go to public school here and, you know, um, I forget the exact percentage, but something like... 30, whatever, 40% are, are low income um, housing people, you know, children on, on Title I um, uh, free lunch program. Yeah. Um, I know by the time my children got to preschool, they already won the race. They were, they were already light years ahead That's of so mine. many of those uh, other Same with my two kids, same thing I look at going, they'll never have what I had to go through. Uh, but right, you got to see it a little different now of saying that where your kids are. And, and the, the amazing part to me is, you know, with your engagement in, 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 this, in, in, in the foster care um, system, you know that the benefit to everyone that touches those children is also compounded. You know that you're building resiliency within your own community by caring for those children Amen, by the threat. Way. Their parents that that had to give them up for whatever reason, those parents aren't the threat. Like, if we continue to think about the other as the threat and the thing that's keeping us down, um, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting to me, again, when I look at it from the political spectrum, um, you know, those on the left with identity politics um, are, are, are exacerbating that gap between individuals, right? So, um, so if, if everyone on the right is, is, is viewing, you know, is othering, uh, people of color or, uh, people with the kind of backgrounds that, 
that we've been talking about. Um, and then everybody else on the left is like, well, I'm only focused on a very small splinter of, you know, whichever community. Um, we continue to break us apart. We continue to drive a huge gap. You're fracturing I mean, the nation. That's right. That's right. And there's no repair in any of that. And I know a lot of really rich people. I mean, I just live outside of Manhattan. I got a lot of Wall Street friends. They are pretty miserable, right? They could not be richer. They could not be more successful. They could not be, you know, have better looking partners, whatever. It doesn't matter. But they're miserable because they're so... That's all they want. Right. They're so disconnected. So when I think about, you know, our kids think they're connected, you know, because we have our phones and everybody's, you know, on social media. But we are more alone. We are more isolated, uh, more distant from one another, from our food, from the land than ever before in this country. The 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 teen suicide epidemic is horrifying. But it's rooted in this idea that these kids a feel alone, that they have no support from the community, and b. Um, they are in competition with everyone, including their friends, because the only way you're going to get into the right school is if you make sure that other kid doesn't get into that school. That's correct. That's right? the system. So, well, that's the system, right? And some of us are fortunate enough that you know our children can go to a school that charging these exorbitant rates. But for the greatest part of this country, uh, you know, higher education was the great unifier. You know, it wasn't that many years ago that you could go to a good state school or a good college for, you know, a few hundred dollars a semester. You know, I have a daughter who's a senior in high school. Uh, she will be this September. We're looking at colleges that are, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars yeah, a year. Life changing numbers. I mean that Right. And as a as a Canadian, you know, I know my daughter yeah. could go to university in Canada for yeah. three thousand dollars. By the way, any relationship you know, with any of those famous Canadian families? Well, not really. Well, no. all right. And if you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a bacon, I'm like, I knew it. It's always seven degrees of separation. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's like, but, you know, there's there's something to be said in this idea that, um, I don't know, some some basic understandings that, that, that I'm watching, you know, it was funny the other day at the farm. We we had a group of uh, middle schoolers out to the farm uh, from from Newark, and uh, the, most of these kids had never been out of the city of Newark ever. And uh, spent a day where our our uh, ex offenders run the day. Uh, we plant you know crops together, then we harvest and we cook, and then we go for walks in the woods and we teach the kids about mushrooms and foraging and all this stuff. And it's a whole day, right? So this one little girl who hadn't talked really all day. We're out for this walk in the woods. And she came up to me and she said, you need to go to college to do this. And I was like, well, no, actually what's great about food is like, whether you want to work in a restaurant or farming, like you can intern and then you can build this and you could end up owning all your own restaurants or anything. And then she was quiet for a little bit. And then she came back up to me and said, can I have this when you're gone? And I was like, what do you mean when I'm gone? You know, know, when you're dead, can I have this? I I don't know. You might want to talk to my kids. But what I loved was like her head was just spinning with all of these options, right? She saw this as an opportunity. She had never been exposed to anything like this where she didn't know what that would feel like or, or that that was even a chance to pursue that. So just that little bit of exposure, that one day of exposure may have totally reframed how she thinks about everything. Um, and, and if we're not give whether it's a foster child or it's, 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 it's someone who's in our, you know, in the vast majority of Americans who are so impoverished, um, uh, if we're not allowing them to participate in the communities that we're building, we're all kind of out of luck, you know?
Yeah. And and I, but I will say what's really interesting for me, and you asked, you know, kind of what keeps me going, that the I'm outrageously optimistic about the future. I'm outrageously um, not hopeful. That's the wrong word. I, I believe that we're at this really interesting moment where we're making a shift and. And I think we're going to shift the country and the planet in the right direction. And when anyone's participating in that healing work or in that, you know, solutions economy that I was talking about, they feel like I do. Um, they're more joyous, right? I feel more successful now. I, I made I made a boatload of money. I was in the movie business. I was an attorney. You know, I owned an ad agency. I made a lot of money. Nothing felt like this. That did never felt like success. Fame and money never felt like success. This is what success feels this is like. Your, this is your purpose. Right. And when one's working on purpose, when one's leading a meaningful life, when one's serving others, right, that's where real joy comes from. You know, like, I don't know, happiness is pretty fleeting. You can get a new car and you're happy for about four minutes. New becomes old. A cup of coffee out or something. Yeah, then that lasts forever. Another thing and then you got to, you know, more bills to pay. You know, happiness is fleeting, but joy, like real joy, real meaning comes from serving others and building community and 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 creating resiliency, you know, it, out there in the world. And um and so I don't know with that even though I'm really scared, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we're like I said, a lot of things we're trying are failing, right? Agriculture, the beginning of climate change is hard. Uh, helping people re-enter society, whether they're coming from a tour of duty or they're coming out of prison, is really hard. And like I said, we we don't do it right most of the time. But it's still, we're also outrageously, you know, forward thinking about it because because it's bigger than just you know ourselves. It is much bigger. And so, on your journey, we always like to ask. One of the final questions being, who's the toughest person you've ever known? Who's that person in your life that has been there or accountability or that you knew their story, you now know them or just in general? Uh, it could be mentally they're strong, physically, but some of you go, man, that person, they're just, they're tough. Mm. It could be a few people. Well, you know, I will tell you, um, you know, I meant you asked where it came from and I, and I, think about my parents. It was interesting. My mother recently passed away and um, thank you. And, and, and my dad passed away a few years before that. And I realized like I always, uh, every day that I was driving back and forth from the farm, I'd always talk to my mom about what we were working on. And, um, you know, she's like, Oh my God, that reminds me, we're just doing this thing about this. And then, you know, she'd jump right in and I realized, Oh my gosh, she was three steps ahead of me. And I, I think I'm changing the world and I've got a new, you know, direction, everything. And I was like, Oh, please. Like my parents hit that way before me. So I didn't understand not only their strength, but their, um, their kindness and their generosity. And I think, and I'm only getting this now, pretty much with them not being here, that um, they had created such a solid foundation for me that I'm able to be fearless in my work because I don't feel like I have that far to fall because I always had this safety net. Um, so even though I fail, even though I stumble, you know, I know that's just part of it. So I get up and I start doing it better. And um, I don't think I could have had that without their, um, you know, strength and, um, and fortitude. And my dad, who, you know, grew up in a very small Canadian town, had to leave high school to help support his family, uh, you know, um, 
you know, I'm shocked at how cosmopolitan he was. I'm shocked how how generous he was. I'm shocked how he understood sort of all of this stuff without having, you know, lived this big kind of global life. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that's a canned answer that yeah, no, it's, it's actually parents, it, it, but, it's know. a good one. And, and what was their names? Uh, so my dad, a uh, very good Jewish name, Irving Rosen, <laughs> Ir- Irving. and uh, my mom was Jeannie Rosen. Or yeah. His, yeah. Irving yeah. and Jeannie. Jeannie. And yeah. Jeannie. All right. Well, we always do a send off. Thanks for joining us today. And life's tough, but Irving and Janine Rosen were tougher. Thanks again for joining us, Gerald. Wow. Thanks for telling us your story. Thank you. It's a, such a pleasure. Thank you, Devin. So that wraps up our show for today. Thanks again to Charles Rosen for making this another outstanding episode of our Life's Tough podcast. And thanks to you, our amazing audience, for making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant, engaging, and fastest-growing shows around. Also, special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough chief writer and my Sherpa, and to my executive producer and friend, John Miller, of the Alston Carlisle Studio here in Baltimore, Maryland. You already know life is tough, and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com pfinancial.com to learn how Carl can help you get tough on business securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Inc member FINRA SIPC the stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them it's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience instead I ask you to use your story to empower others your story may be just what it takes to help somebody in your circle or perhaps in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance in when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show, visit lifestuff.com, and be sure to join us every week for a new stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Tell your friends about us too. Remember, everyone has a story, and every story has a purpose. Life's tough, you could be tougher. Thanks for listening and being a part of our community. Now, for the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Planelt signing off. Have a great week, everyone.